Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides eye care for a lifetime for people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GESCenterNCSU. Finally, Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. GeneCentric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. WCOM and Radio In Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Once in a great while, I have the distinct pleasure of being able to welcome both a working scientist and a friend to Radio In Vivo, and that is certainly the case today, as my WCOM colleague Andrew George joins me on the show. Andrew is the Community Engagement Coordinator at the Center for Public Engagement with Science in the UNC Institute for the Environment. In that position, he works with community groups across the state in partnership to conduct research in groundwater, particularly well water. 
It's been a very lively area of research over the past few years with considerable citizen involvement. And with 3.3 million North Carolinians getting their water from private wells, it's vitally important to know exactly what is going on with them in order to safeguard public health. Andrew received his Ph.D. in environmental policy at UNC Chapel Hill in 2010, which followed his master's from UNC in the Curriculum for the Environment and Ecology. He earned his B.A. in political ecology from Appalachian State University. Andrew George, welcome to Radio and Vivo. Hey, thanks for having me. To start us out, Andrew, tell us more about the uh, UNC Institute for the Environment and uh, this uh, Center for Public Engagement with Science. Sounds right up my alley. It's definitely an awesome job. Uh, and let me just start off by saying thanks for having me. It was a really great welcome. Uh, it's great to be on this side of the mixing board and <laughs> yeah. sharing some stories. Yeah. Um, so I guess I started working with uh, the Institute for the Environment in 2015 and uh, the Center for Public Engagement with Science around that time. Um, the center and the institute are basically the research arms of the environmental programming at UNC. There's also the curriculum, or which is now what's called the the Environment, Ecology, and Energy Program, the E3P program, which originally was the curriculum for ecology and basically the academic side of the institute or of the university. And so you have kind of an academic side, which I actually still teach with, and then you have the research side. And uh, I'm positioned as a community engagement person trying to help bridge the work that we're doing in the institute with communities to help achieve North Carolina's mission. I see. Very good. Well, that must keep you pretty busy. We have plenty of work to do. For example, after tonight, I'm going to be driving down to Robinson County. Uh, tomorrow morning at 6 in the morning, we're going to be sampling well water from communities impacted by Hurricane Florence uh, in in the Lumbee area with the Lumbee tribe. And then actually the next day, I'm going to go down to Wilmington and do some sampling there. So it keeps me busy. You stay on the road for a good part of your time, I guess. Yeah, it's it's in a really fun way to get to know North Carolina. Some of the work I got to do in the mountains. Um, more recently, we did a bunch of work in Iredell County. And then uh, luckily for me, being from Chatham County, uh, I've actually completed a project or close to completing a project there which we've been doing for the past couple of years, which has been really rewarding and insightful. Well, uh, Andrew, at the Citizen Science Conference uh, in Raleigh that I covered last March, uh, you and I kind of connected at that point, and I attended your presentation, which was titled Using Citizen Science to Study Well Water Contamination in Environmental Justice Communities in North Carolina. And it was a, it was a great presentation. Thank you. Uh, and it's a fascinating project. I'd like to hear all about it uh, in more detail. First of all, would you give us the big picture of the project itself and some of its results? Um, I think the the best way to describe it is it's a, a unique way of approaching kind of participatory science in that we literally put the bottles in the hands of the communities that are concerned about some of these impacts, provide a way for them to literally sample their own water, bring it to the scientists, and then we you know we bring it to the lab. Um, and it, it builds ownership into the project, and then we also make sure that when we do return the results, um, we, we provide it in a way that they can understand, the communities can understand them, um, and then also it's, it's important to, to provide some way of at least uh, addressing some of these issues. And so for North Carolina, 
Um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, about a quarter or a third of North Carolinians get their drinking water from a private well, and actually a lot more actually get their water from a well for, through the utilities. But um, among those we started looking at at the Institute, uh, those three million folks, um, we started looking at some of the data that was available to us at the Department of Health and Human Services, who had been testing private wells in North Carolina for a long time. They had this huge database, um, but nobody had really looked at it. And so at around 2010, um, some of the folks at the Institute that I work with, as well as partners at the Gilling School for Global Public Health, specifically the Fry Lab and some other folks, mm-hmm. um, were a part of this team called the Superfund Project, this team that basically provided kind of opportunities to seek out environmental problems that folks had not necessarily addressed. And so this data set allowed us to kind of look for the first time at what's going on with North Carolina drinking water. And unfortunately, it turned out that about a quarter of those wells were um, contaminated with either a primary or secondary contaminant. Um, And so as that kind of project and science started to grow, we started to learn and develop a better understanding of what's going on with drinking water exposure to North Carolinians. Um, We also were learning more about environmental justice issues and how certain communities um, that either through a history of segregation being forced out to the margins of towns and being required to drink private wells or other communities that were on private wells, but um, because of the patterns um, of siting a lot of industrial sites disproportionately within communities of color or poorer communities, we kind of started to understand what's been documented, for example, by Richard Bullard and others in the 80s and actually in North Carolina starting in the 1980s with what's called environmental injustice and how certain communities are um, experiencing hardships because of their, their, their situation in these um, marginalized areas and because they rely on drinking water wells. And so the, the fact that we were learning all this about these private wells through the science and the, stu- and the, the public data set, and then also developing a, a better understanding of what's happening with communities that are experiencing these disproportionate burdens of pollution. Um, that I came around 2015 and uh, was a, kind of provided an opportunity to, to bridge those two, op- two areas, um, working with specifically communities that were really concerned about coal ash contamination in North Carolina, as you are, I'm sure, know, uh, know very well the 2014 of February coal ash spill in, on the Dan River um, opened a lot of eyes to potential contamination and concerns. And of course, many of those uh, facilities, there's about 32 coal ash ponds around North Carolina, started um, people living near those communities are proportionately um, lower SES, socioeconomic status, and um, also are uh, on drinking water wells. And so we started getting a lot of questions about that. And that was right around the time I came on board. Um, and so uh, 2015, I was at a public hearing and I was just happened to get there a little early. And one of the people standing next to me was really nice. And we were talking and she invited me up to Stokes County where there's a community that's really concerned about some of the impacts on their drinking water wells. Um, and so that kind of got the ball rolling. And from that time, it's literally kind of, uh, happened so that now I'm, um, working with other environmental justice communities across the state. Like I mentioned earlier with the Lumbee tribe, um, in Chatham County and Moncure, um, who who need a little bit of a, um, a special help in figuring out what's going on with their drinking water, and and sometimes that requires free well testing, um, more you know filtering questions that we can answer, some things like that. I see, very good. Well, um, in the overall scheme of things, uh, Andrew, 
how vital is the citizen science aspect to this research, other than uh, their uh, cooperation with the research uh, and, and actually physically conducting most of the testing themselves? What do those community folks bring to the table? Well, I, I think that the best answer to that question is that we are per, we're able to test a whole lot more wells, many more wells than we would normally if we had to actually go into the field and sample the, the wells themselves. So I mentioned in Stokes County, when we were doing that project, we were actually still sampling and collecting this, the well water uh, ourselves, and actually it required us to go up to some of the wells, and we would purge the water for 20 minutes, um, and then take a sample, and then go to the next home. And so it was very slow, and actually that project, we got about 40 wells sampled, and then we started working with some other labs who had the capacity to um, just basically not require a well purge, and we would we would send the bottles to the communities. They would, uh, the, you know, the citizens themselves were, would take the sample themselves and then bring it back to us. And so, for example, in, in you know, in Iredell County, we just had 800 wells sampled in a in like a month, and there would be no way that we could get that kind of uh, number of, of participants if we were going to do it by ourselves without the support of the community and without self-sampling, what's, you know, some come sometimes called citizen sampling or civic sampling so that um, they can not only be a part of the study itself and, and understand what's happening, but actually improve the study and make the power of the study more um, trans, you know, uh, translatable to the community once we actually have the results. I see. So if contamination is found in a well, what then? Well, that's really the first question. Um, a lot of folks are, you know, don't understand. Well, a lot of folks don't test their wells, unfortunately. And the, the majority of wells go untested in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, we actually have a new law in the books. Well, actually, in 2008, uh, the state required any new well that was be built to be tested. Um, and then that would be kind of the data for that goes on the state public health lab data set. But most folks who actually have existing wells are not required to test them despite the fact that this, the, the most scientists say you should test your well probably every year, at least every other year. But the testing itself is, um, you know, costs hundreds of dollars. And then to your question, what do you do when you find the contamination? Um, some of these metals that we've found in North Carolina are um, what are called inorganic metals. And so we're talking about lead and mercury. Some of them are um, industrial derived. But and what we found in North Carolina is – that a lot of them just come up out of the bedrock. And sure. so for things like arsenic and manganese are metals that are, you know, are unfortunately showing up in a lot of wells. So what do you do when you find them? Um, you know, the, there are a couple different solutions. And, and when we report back the results to the communities, what we try and do is we make sure we leave them with either some, some ideas about, for example, flushing your water. If you have metals that are coming potentially out of your pipe, sometimes you can flush your water for a couple of minutes and that will help it a little bit. There are also some now there's some low cost solutions uh, through these kind of tabletop pitchers like, a you know, you've heard of a Brita pitcher. We actually have been working with a company called Zero Water Pitchers because we learned that their pitcher actually reduces arsenic out of the water. It's only 40 bucks. Um, they were generous enough to hook me up with about 230 of them at very low cost for some of these projects. So we were handing these pitcher filters out. And then you can also get um, a whole house filter or maybe an under the sink pitcher filter or uh, under the sink system that you can treat your water there, and those are a bit more expensive and require more maintenance and annual cost to replace the filters. And then there are also like, you know, those are like $100 or $300 or up to 1000 or so. And then you can actually get these whole house systems that treat other things like radiological metals that have been found in Wake County. 
but those can get up to like thirteen or fifteen thousand wow. dollars. Mm-hmm. So the treatment really, I mean, the first thing that anybody needs to do if they have a drinking water well is to test it, um, and if hopefully you know you'll get some results back and everything will be fine. Um, you can test most of your wells through your state, uh, your county um, de- health department. They can provide free well tests, but um, because the way that the state lab works, they can potentially measure things only down to a certain level. And unfortunately, the danger level might actually be kind of in that gray area below that level. Yeah. So anyway, um, to, to help folks, you know, these citizen scientists, they come in, they help us develop, you know, develop the study, get more samples. And then we provide them with their results, but then also hopefully some potential solutions that, that speak to what we're finding in their wells. It, is it more challenging, uh, given that you work uh, largely with environmental justice communities where I'm sure poverty is rampant, uh, what do those folks do uh, when they discover their well is contaminated? Um, we've actually had a really good response because we're providing these free tests and because we're Carolina. Um, a lot of the – sometimes when I, when I ri- drive up in, a, in our van, the first thing I do is I show my UNC T-shirt and I'm like, <laughs> hey, we're not here to sell you anything. We're not here to find out what's going on with your well and put it up on some public database. All the results that they get are going to be completely confidential and it's free. And so I, you know, it doesn't really matter who you're providing that opportunity with. Most folks are down with that, especially if you're a Carolina fan. And then um, – go Tar Heels. And then uh, – yeah, Unless you're coming into a Duke household. <laughs> well, yes, and they, you know, they, they should be drinking clean water as well. Sure. So um, what we do is uh, we, we work and try to focus in communities that need our help potentially more than others who might have more resources. And so that's why we've worked, for example, like I mentioned, Stokes County, and we were in Wayne County. Um, more recently, we've been doing a lot of work with the Lummi Tribe. So um, we, we feel like, it, you know – Anywhere we go with free filters and free well tests, I think we'll have mostly open doors, especially because we're Carolina and we, we don't put the results up online. But we also only, you know, we do have a limited supply of free well tests, and we want to make sure that they go to the communities that need them most. And oftentimes, those are the folks who have the fewest well tests because either it's too expensive or they don't want it to potentially undermine their property values because sometimes if somebody sees that you have a private well and they see your results, that might diminish your property value. Mm -hmm. But then also these communities are just least like, you know, they're less likely to test their wells. And if they find something in their wells, the science tells us that they're less likely to treat their wells. Um, And oftentimes because of this disproportionate burden of pollution in these communities, they're also more likely to have contamination. So it makes sense for us to focus, focus where we're needed most. And that's where we end up. I see. Well, that brings me to the next question I had for you, which is, about research results. Uh, now, I know that part of citizen science is returning those results to the participants, to the stakeholders. Uh, how do you handle that? Is it just results being given to individual homeowners, or do you conduct group events uh, at more at the community level? That's a great question. Um, so first of all, we definitely just provide the results. We, we send folks a uh, uh, their results in in the mail, hard copy. We try not to email them just to avoid any potential um, privacy issues. So once they get their own results, um, the, the materials themselves, we try to synth- synthesize the the most important findings in a way that are easily understood by lay audience. By lay audience, and so I'm fortunately enough um, working with folks at my team who are experts in, in environmental communication. Um, we have what's called a research translation core group that um, allows us to 
think about how to best provide some of these results that they can be understood in a way that doesn't terrify folks, but then also motivates them to do something about them. Um, so that's the materials themselves and what, you know, an individual homeowner who has been a part of our study will get that in the mail. They'll open it up and they'll, they'll be able to understand what's going on a little bit. Uh, ho- hopefully, uh, you know, develop a better understanding of what's going on with their well. Yeah. Then, um, and, and when I came on board, I was actually surprised that this isn't a more common practice, but uh, we provide what's called a report back. And most of the time, I guess this is not a common practice, but um, for us, what we do is we have community meetings where we invite the individual study participants to the community group, so like a library or you know um, C- Central Community College, and then we have all the results in a way that can explain what we found but doesn't allow anybody to be disclosed um, so that we can summarize the findings, explain where we might want to focus some attention, and then also um, – you know, synthesize it so that nobody can be disclosed. Uh, then actually at those meetings themselves, we also bring in a lot of these filters. We hand out some of the free filters. Um, but I should also say that that's not the end of the story because these filters are not a permanent solution. They're just kind of a tabletop filter. Um, sometimes people need more long-term support, either through, you know, maybe a whole house system, um, thinking about ways to potentially even get off of private wells. So some folks have been thinking about how to hook up to municipal systems. So we try to be a part of the conversation from the beginning to the end and the report back and reporting back to these community groups are, are unfortunately not as common as they should be, but we do it every time we do one of these studies, every community that we work with, we come back to the community, we open the doors and we invite all the study participants, but then everybody else in the community who wants to know what's going on with some of the drinking water wells. Um, a lot of folks show up to these meetings. So for example, we had like a hundred people show up to one of the group meetings in Pittsburgh last month. A lot of them were a part of the study, but other folks were just concerned about drinking water because they either have private wells, they know folks on private wells. And so those meetings are really important, and I think it would be kind of a disservice. And I don't understand how you can actually do a community study without returning back to that study and helping them understand what you found. Because, I mean, a lot of the studies that do this kind of work and don't follow that practice, it, the study goes up online or goes up in a, you know, behind a firewall research journal and it goes up in a library and nobody ever really understands it. And sometimes I even talk to, you know, journalists, like some of the biggest journalists in North Carolina don't understand what's going on behind some of these scientific journals. You know, um, one of the most important environmental uh, reporters in North Carolina, Bruce Henderson at Charlotte Observer is a really great reporter. And I was talking to him about some of these issues and it occurred to me that he didn't, he wasn't really up to speed with some of the stuff because it's behind one of these paid um, subscription uh, firewalls from, the journal. So we, we like to think that we're just cutting through all that and going right to the community and providing them some of the results. And then, of course, we do publish our work. Um, you know, actually, I just had one of these studies published, I think it was last week, about what we were doing in Stokes County. Um, and we're going to continue to help fill the literature with the best, most current understanding of some of the scholarship. But um, that's not my first goal. My first goal is, well, my first goal is to make sure that folks who need their wells tested understand that we can do it in a free and hopefully, you know, confidential way and then provide them some results. Um, and then, of course, we also do work with the local media. Um, so they actually show up to some of these um, public town hall events or community report back meetings and help us get, you know, get the word about, uh, about what's happening. But um, that's not really our central focus. We wanted to speak directly to the folks who've been a part of the study. Well, looping back around to the, the beginnings, uh, in your experience, is it difficult to get the individual well owners to participate? 
Yeah, so I guess a good example of that is in Chatham County, um, There's they were offering free well tests to folks who were living near uh, an industrial coal ash landfill mm-hmm. that was improperly permitted in a community that is disproportionately burdened by a whole bunch of other toxic waste and other problems. And is this Moncure? This is in Moncure. Okay. Um, so about uh, maybe 15 miles or t- 20 miles as the crow flies from here. And they, the, the county was trying to get folks to test their wells, but nobody was really participating because they were afraid that the, either the results would go up online or it would, you know, somehow the word would get out about their property values. And mm-hmm. they didn't get the reception that they were hoping for. And so um, we were able to come in there and test a number of those wells, not only because, um, you know, we're Carolina and we're trusted and we have a good lab and we're going to do all the, the testing well and, you know, good um, quality assurance, everything like that, but also because we could make sure that it would be completely confidential. Um, so those two things really help. Uh, you know, there are there have definitely been times when I've had the door slammed in my face. I'm not going to joke about that. Um, but uh, there, there are also times where, you know, like I went into a home and there, there was a homeowner who was not really happy with us being there, but because we were interested in helping, him, you know, help him with his well water, um, you know, he stood up and he had a gun and he talked to us a little bit and then, Turned out that he was one of the really important community members of this this neighborhood, and he took us door to door to the throughout the whole community. Um, again, primarily because we were Carolina, like literally, I stepped out of the van and I showed him my Carolina shirt. I was like, "Look, we're here from Carolina. We just want to help with some of the well testing." So, I think you know, I think it depends on who you are. Some folks are going to, you know, the state has a harder time getting folks to to do private well tests because they can't provide them for free often and if they do there the communities won't respond because they don't want it to go up online yeah um and then of course you've got the private well companies that um folks really don't trust because there are many good companies out there but there are a couple bad apples that make that that burn down the trust so we fortunately have um, established a good level of trust with these communities and i think we've shown through a lot of the work that i've been doing you know the last couple years that we follow through with what we're going to say we're going to you know return with the results we're going to keep the results confidential um, and uh, that seems like a critical aspect. Uh, speaking as someone who has been through all this relatively recently, uh, we just sold a property in Hillsboro last November and went through some uh, well water issues, okay. uh, as in failing okay. <laughs> and having to get uh, some treatment and shock the well, and, okay. you know, all of that. Uh, and it, you know, it just about affected the potential sale of the huh. property. Okay. Uh, so it's a it's a hairy situation if if contamination is found, which at the time it was, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so the confidentiality you're talking about, I think, is is critical. Yeah, and that's. I mean, I also have a private well in Chatham County, um, and I've, ironically enough, while I was talking to different community groups about some of their contamination, I got a letter from the state telling me that I had exceeded levels for copper in my water. Hmm, okay. Um, and so I got what's called a do not drink letter. Oh, geez. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, very personally understand and can, uh, can empathize uh, with some of these community groups. And so um, I understand why it's got to be confidential, you know, what it means to be told that the, this thing that you've been pulling up out of the ground and putting into your body and putting into your children's bodies yeah. or your, your, your family members' bodies could be more risky than you had you know, understood is, is it's, it can be scary and it can, it can kind of rock your world in ways that, you know, you can, you can change your brand of cheese or you can go and buy a different kind of shoe or something, but you can't necessarily switch your source of water 
And it, these systems are very complex. They, they age, and so they require maintenance. Um, and so it's, it's challenging. And so the first thing that we have to do is just make, make sure that when we approach uh, these community groups about some of these, these problems, that we, you know, we come in with an understanding that this is not kind of like a – we're not here to talk about the weather. We're really talking about important – of course, the weather is important, but talking about really important personal things that affect each, each well owner differently. Each well is different. Each well was di- built at a different time with different technology, different um, equipment. And then each source of that water comes from different rocks and different substructures. And so, you know, it's it's complex. And so what we try to do is just bring in some uh, sense of humility and, and appreciation that these community groups are struggling to understand what's going on with their own homes and their own lives. And it's um, it's humbling, but at the same time, when we do, you know, help underst- you know better understand what's going on with their wells and we can provide some results – it's it's really meaningful work. I I love it. I mean, it's it's stressful. It's intense, <laughs> but it's it's some of the most rewarding work that I've ever been a part of. Well, you're you're literally helping people and helping protect public health. Yeah, um, and, and I wish we could do more too. I mean, when we provide these filters, they are just kind of a temporary solution. And sometimes you know these sometimes these wells are beyond repair. They're either yeah. broken down themselves or they're sourcing water that is permanently contaminated and we're really only talking right now about these metals. You know, we're talking about some of these inorganic metals that some of them can come from the groundwater, like we said earlier. Some of them can come from the pipes. But then there's a lot of other stuff that's going on with water these days with radiological water or what are called PFAS or prefluorinated compounds that we're, basically are coming off of um, Teflons. And We're and, certainly hearing a lot about PFAS these yeah, days. Yeah, and I wish yeah. we could do more. I wish we could test that. And, in fact, some of the labs that we're working with right now are, are, are actually starting to test those. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I go, I'm going to be in New Hanover tomorrow or on Friday testing wells and talking about metals. But they're, I mean, right there in the Cape Fear, they're really concerned about PFAS yeah, and, and sure. Gen X and these, yeah. these and, and I have to and, and say. And it's hitting Pittsburgh as well, is it not, yes, with the Haw ha River? Yeah, the Haw River. And um, the Haw River has some of the highest levels of PFAS that we've found in the state um and not only just pfos or these fluorinated compounds but also some other these weird lubricants these this one thing called one four dioxine and some of these other things that we actually don't even necessarily know which company is releasing it into the water supply but it's coming down the hall river people are you know pittsburgh is supplying all these people with water from the hall river they they treat their water but that but these treatment systems actually don't take some of the stuff out of the water yeah um or if you know back to the metals question sometimes they can treat these metals but they don't get them down below to the level that the scientists tell us are the health protective levels. Mm-hmm. So it can reduce the amount that's in your water, but it doesn't actually get it down to the level where the state has said this is an acceptable level of risk. So to be honest, like, yeah, this is really rewarding work, but it's I think I'm just barely chipping at the tip of the iceberg. And that really when we start to think about exposure through our drinking water and we're only talking about wells and, you know, two thirds of the public gets their water from utilities. Most of that utility water is safe, but we're also learning that there's also PFAS in a lot of that water. Wow. Um, there's PFAS in, in bottled water. Um, so it's it's an intense project, but it's also, you know, I think I feel like I'm a part of, you know, a, developing something or an understanding of, of something that's really important for North Carolinians, and, and I feel like I'm doing the best I can. Absolutely. <laughs> you have my endorsement. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, returning to the environmental justice communities, Andrew, um, are those communities often dumping grounds for 
hazardous waste, and is that contributing to well water contamination in those areas? Yeah, so um, the North Carolina experience with environmental justice is actually where the the international environmental justice kind of understanding or appreciation for what's going on actually began here right over there at the Ward Transformer site. Sure. Um, right next to the the airport down there, uh, um, Lake Crabtree, where in the 1980s they were building these transformers, which you guys probably can – I can see right here from the studio. They're, they're the top of the, you know, the, the electricity poles. You have those big tubes. Those are transformers. They're basically cooling lubricants that allow the, the electricity to move and without – burning um and so they they had developed a lot of these uh lubricants at this one particular site and they spilled into the the, the neighbor uh the lake crabtree and um were problematic and so to to clean it up um some unscrupulous person thought it would be a good idea to put it on the back of a truck and drive it around 20 miles of eastern north carolinian streets and just dump it along the side of the roads yeah yeah um, well, I, I remember this way too well you know it was a it was a major uh disaster really uh, i was working in news in those days so i remember going out to warren county and wow. shooting the roadsides and all the cleanup and it was a mess well that's that's from my from reading it uh it sounds like your first experience is is uh is, is telling us something terrible was going on at the time yeah um and so that's and that was a good uh, example of environmental justice. I, I guess you're saying that that's really the roots of the movement, uh, because it was predominantly uh, black areas in Warren County where where the stuff got dumped, and there they made a, a, a cleanup site where all the dirt they took from the roadsides that was full of PCBs went to a landfill in Warren County. Yep. So you, so they dumped it all over the roads, like you're saying. So they found out about it, so they had to scrape it all off the roads. The person who did that eventually went to jail. Yeah. But um, once they cleaned it all up, they had to bring it somewhere. And um, now, like what we've understood more broadly about environmental injustice in North Carolina is that the uh, the pollution went to one of the poorest counties in North Carolina, um, and they fought it very hard. And it was actually the biggest act of civil disobedience against a landfill. Um, in the history of the, of the country, um, and they were unfortunately not able to stop it, but they were they brought enough attention to what was going on. And many folks think about what happened in Warren County as kind of the beginning of not necessarily environmental injustice understanding, because I mean, what's going on with tribal communities for 500 years can be described as environmental injustice. But it was what happened in Warren County was that we really started put some kind of numbers behind some of the pollution, and that's when we started seeing some other studies start to emerge that looked at how environmental uh, justice uh, a lens can help understand what's happening in some of these areas better than other ways of thinking about them. So, for example, you might think poverty is a really great kind of indicator for some of this pollution, but it's actually not necessarily the case that, you know, it, it, what Richard Bullard calls the race class trap, where Actually, poor white communities are less likely to have some of this pollution than more affluent African-American communities. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so that it is what Richard Bullard calls environmental racism. And, and so for thinking about what happened in, in Warren County and then looking at all over these other mo most sites across the state or across the country, they're, they're all mostly more likely to be in communities of color. And, of course, the next variable is poverty. Um, so – 
thinking about that and understanding how it's basically come out of North Carolina gives me kind of a, even more inspiration to, to bring it into the work. Um, I also have been able to fortunately work with the Institute for the Environment and the curriculum at UNC, the E3P program, to do some classes where my class is kind of thinking under the umbrella of environmental justice. How can we use these understandings about environmental justice metrics? So like class, race, um, thinking about uh, education levels, even age sometimes can be an interesting indicator. And then um, how can we, knowing what we know about those, those different indicators, how can we apply that to other areas of the state to see if sometimes that helps us predict what's going on with some contamination? Um, and, and, and when we're talking about well water, um, because there's so much pollution in well water and because it's so ubiquitous, so like, for example, manganese is in like almost a third of the wells in North Carolina. Manganese is one of these metals. It's actually an essential metal at lower levels, but at higher levels, it can be a problem, especially for young children who might experience neuro neurological developmental issues. Um, that stuff is everywhere. So when we apply this EJ lens to contamination, it's hard to see a pattern because it's so, it's so widespread. Mm -hmm. But um, when we actually start to piece apart, well, whether or not if, if it's naturally occurring or industrially occurring, sometimes that might be a way to understand whether or not there is an injustice occurring where that some folks were communities were targeted or unfairly kind of experiencing some of these burdens that other communities haven't. But the, you know, that research is still coming together. And um, I think when, when we have better ways of uh, doing some fingerprinting on the metals themselves, like knowing what, you know, for example, manganese can be naturally occurring. They say chromium-6, which is this metal that you guys probably heard about through the Aaron Brockovich movie and what we've heard a lot about in North Carolina, which is the scientist tells us that it's not uh, naturally occurring and that um, it's generally industrially derived. And when they started looking at all these coal ash facilities, that was one of the major metals that popped up and not necessarily because um, they hadn't you know, found it before. They just hadn't looked before. Yeah. And so um, – at the same time, though, to be honest or to be completely transparent, that might also be because they just hadn't looked anywhere else. And when we started for my study, we started looking at all over the all over North Carolina. We found it in about half of the wells that we've looked at in North Carolina. And those wells aren't necessarily in around industrial sites. So it could be from naturally occurring potentially. That's what some scientists are now saying. It could be industrially derived. It could be both. It could be some jerk who dumped it down a hole in the 1940s. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to say. So given how complex the sourcing question is, I just avoid it. And when I'm talking to community groups, I tell them, like, look, we might not ever know how this got in your water. Mm -hmm. but, but for right now, let's just put that aside and think about what's the most important order of business. That's to get between you and that water and make sure that that water is not going into your bodies or your children's bodies. Um, that's usually the first order of business. And then if we, you know, we can bring in some of these fingerprinting analyses and think about it. And so far, we're, we're in the process of doing that. But we haven't necessarily found a fingerprint for some of these metals that would you know be a quote-unquote smoking gun that says this is obviously from the site yeah. in fact most like for example epidemiology work or work that tries to find a cause for some of these cancer clusters very 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 almost like i think one out of 300 different ex published examples have ever conclusively shown a cause an environmental cause um from from some industry and so i you know i've learned the hard way that trying to to nail that question early, it's just, it's, it's not necessarily a distraction, but it's, um, it is a distraction because what's, 
what really needs to be a focus on is getting more people testing their water and then finding out what's in their water and, and, and providing some kind of short-term or hopefully long-term solution. Then if, we, if the science gets there and we can tell them how it got there, that will be great. But um, if it never happens, at least we've gotten some kind of you know, protection that might not have been there. Sure. Well, as you say, the, the priority is to protect people's health. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about the health aspect. Uh, what are the potential health hazards associated with contaminated well water? And, and has there been any documented evidence correlating well water consumption with adverse health outcomes? Well, let me start that off by saying private wells are not regulated. So you don't have to have your well tested if you have an existing well, and there's there's very little impetus to test your well it's called optimism bias that you know, at this point if you've not had anything going wrong everything can be fine and you're just going to continue without testing but um when we did look at some of the te- some of the well water for example there's a paper that uh saunders paper under the out of the fry lab and the superfund work that we worked on that started showing that there are um issues with some of these metals and some co-occurring metals like manganese and arsenic and cadmium and issues relating to pregnancy complications and preeclampsia and other issues for developing um, fetuses. So there definitely have been um, examples where we know that there, there, there are direct health consequences. Um, there's some other studies that looked at neurological development of um, children and deafness. And sometimes they found correlation between manganese and, um, and health problems for children. The most current question right now, uh, well, one of the biggest questions right now is whether or not some of these metals cause cancer. Um, and, of course, like we know that arsenic definitely can. Um, and in places like in Union County, there are communities that have extremely high levels of arsenic in their water. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we're actually trying to develop a study right now that will help us explore what's going on with that. Um, and that's typically from naturally occurring. Yeah, causes, so it's coming right? up out of the ground. But then there's yeah. also the question, well, maybe, though, it could be naturally occurring, and it could have been from decades of using arsenic and chicken feed that's now found its way down in the aquifers. Wow. Mm-hmm. But again, like, I might not ever know, you yeah. know? And, and I, and and I to, really... To a certain extent, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Like, I, I want to know. I, probably there's very few people who want to know more than I do. <laughs> but um, I can't let that distract me from getting to these homes, trying to test their water, and then hopefully get them some kind of filter that will help in the, in, the, in the meantime. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew George from UNC, and we are learning about his research on well water contamination and citizen science. Thanks for having me. This has been great. I listen to your show all the time. Uh, well, it's, we've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.